I once had advice in terms of, uh, I was asking various different successful people, you know, what should I do with my life? Um, and the feedback that I got was do something that even if no one paid you to do it, you would still do it. And, and for me, that's been the most powerful advice. It's like, ultimately, if, if I never make a, you know, a dime uh, off of doing the things that I do, uh, would I spend my time doing them? The answer is yes. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Welcome, friends, to the 35th episode of Business for Good. Wow, was the last feedback on the last episode with Arturo Elizondo from Clara Foods overwhelming. It is great to hear from so many listeners about how inspirational Arturo's story is, and I can assure you, friends, this conversation with Ryan Bethencourt is another one that will light a fire for many of you listeners. As you'll hear in the episode, Ryan is in many ways an OG of the alt-protein scene. In fact, he was a co-founder of IndieBio, the biotech accelerator which wrote the first ever investor check to Clara Foods, along with first checks for numerous other now big names in the space, from Memphis Meats to Geltor and more all of which Ryan and I discuss in this conversation. In addition to his pioneering work to incubate and fund companies seeking to create more sustainable protein sources, Ryan is now the co-founder of his own startup, Wild Earth, which makes a healthier, clean protein dog food that's attracted big name investors like Peter Thiel and Mark Cuban, earning a total of $16 million in investment so far in the company's two year history. In this episode, we talk about what it was like for Ryan to go on Shark Tank, including what techniques he used to keep calm to win an unlikely investment. We also discuss how Ryan's childhood love of both sci-fi and animals forged into one path as an adult, leading him to make early bets on crazy ideas like growing meat and eggs outside of animals long before it was cool, and of course, eventually to starting his own company. So enjoy this wide-ranging and fascinating conversation with a real pioneer in the alternative protein world. And if you listen to the very end, you may even get to hear my reaction to eating some of Ryan's new dog food. Without further ado, I give you Ryan Bethencourt. Ryan, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here with you after so long. I know we've been looking forward to having this conversation for a while. I especially have been looking forward to it, but it's so cool to be in the Wild Earth HQ, which is a beautiful headquarters. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It looked to me like you must have about 20 people working here right now. And that's entirely, yeah, that's exactly accurate. In fact, <laughs> it is exactly 20 people. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, this company is really not that old and you're already at 20 people. Yeah. So uh, you, you must be doing something right, or at least your investors think so. Well, hopefully so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, hopefully our customers think that, right? So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. For sure. It's, it's always better to raise money from customers yes. than from investors. Um, so let's go back though, before you were the CEO of this startup that yep. is, is really, uh, seeming to catch fire yep. because people know Ryan Bethencourt. Now they might know you as Ryan, the guy who is on shark tank. Yep. They might know you as the guy who's in the prolific Facebook ads of you eating the bowl of yes. dog food, which I have seen dozens and dozens of times. <laughs> uh, it's a good ad. In fact, I want you know, I want to eat some dog food while I'm here. So oh, I can, we'll do that. Okay. Yeah, we'll set you up some dog food. Okay, good. Very good. I, I have tried the dog treats when they yes. first came out. Uh, you generously sent me some and uh, I, I fed them to my uh, my wife's parents' dogs and they, they definitely liked them, but I tried them too. We're, we're going get, to get you a whole bag of Wild Earth. So. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Good. I won't have to buy food for the next week. Um, 
But let's go back to the beginning. Yeah. Because you have a strong interest in biotech now. Yeah. Um, but what got you interested in that in the first place? Were you always somebody who cared about using science to make the world a better place? Was it that you just had an interest in science? Yeah. Like, what was it for you? Yeah, it was always an interest in science. Okay. So, so it really started off with, um, I'm from Miami. Um, my mother actually got me into uh, science fiction. Hmm. Um, and one of the things that uh, she wanted me to, to read more and so she she found like great science fiction books. And so she basically uh, got like just got me a whole bunch of like Isaac Asimov, nice. Robert Heinlein, like all these classics of science fiction, Ursula, Ursula Le Guin. Um, and and that really stoked my interest, and my curiosity about science, like the world we exist in today, how we understand it um, and how human technology since, you know, since literally the invention of fire, how we have used as a species technology to advance ourselves. Mm -hmm. So it was the love of science that really got me into the world of biotech. Now you're a, a child reading all this. Yeah, I was a child. Yeah, yeah. I was probably, you know, 10 years old <clears throat> reading science fiction. Yeah. yeah. And so at that time though, I presume your interest was far from trying to help the environment or to help animals that all came later for yeah, you. Yeah. I had no idea. Right. It was literally, <laughs> I, I was like, this is crazy. I love these stories. Uh, is any of this real? Like that mm -hmm. was, it, it got me thinking and it was like, some of this stuff seems kind of real. Like, could we build it? And, um, you know, it was just, it was just incredible to see that some of these science fiction uh, authors actually were prophesizing the future. Right. right? Yeah. If you go back, I, I mean, e even to like the Star Trek series, like the whole idea of the replicator was essentially cultured meat. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. like they, they had cultivated meat on the ship and they just didn't call it that. They just, you know, said it was like food from the replicator, but that's basically it. Yeah. Only, only the Klingons ate live food and that's because that was part of their tradition. Everyone else just replicated it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So. Yeah. There's a great, uh, there's a great scene that I'm sure you have seen where, um, one of the, I don't know if it was a Klingon, but it was some non-human yeah. who was like shocked because he had seen humans eating meat. And they said, no, 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 like, you know, we're not barbaric. We don't do that. Like, this is how we do it. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty cool to think about how that is now becoming reality. Yeah. And, finally. Yeah. And in fact, interestingly, the first, um, you know, the, the first cultivated meat ever grown was in NASA funded research, you know, it was, the whole idea. It was the gold, goldfish. Right? Yeah. It was yeah. goldfish meat. Yeah. <laughs> Actually one of the entrepreneurs, uh, at IndieBio, um, Alan Perlstein, he was actually part of that. Wow. He, he was actually, that was, that was actually his project. He was, he was a, a research student back then. Amazing. On that. That's so cool. Yeah. It was about 20 years ago and it was in New York and yeah. there was a lot of news attention on that. And that's what led, uh, many of the early pioneers in this field to think like, like, it's cool, but why do you, why do this for space? Like we need this here on earth. Like this isn't something that we want in space. We need this here. Uh, so, you know, in many ways that's led to, you know, those people thinking that in many ways led to us sitting here right now. And in fact, I know that it was uh, for Finless Foods for the co-founders for, for Mike and Brian of Finless. This was actually an literally an inspiration. They read that paper mm -hmm. uh, and, and that led them to start thinking about what, what could they do for the oceans. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. That's really cool. So help us then. So you're 10 years old, Ryan, and yeah. you have this interest in sci-fi. At what point do you then gain the interest in having a love for animals? Because I know it started pretty young for it you, right? It started very young for me. So I, I grew up with animals um, uh, back when I was a kid. I mean, we had many dogs, many cats, uh, at one point a monitor lizard. I don't know if that was legal at the time. It's definitely not legal now. <laughs> um, uh, parakeets, parrots, all sorts of 
snakes, uh, lizards. And so, so uh, in Miami, it was just kind of a tropical environment. There were just, there were just animals everywhere. And so I really grew up with um, I, now in reflection, it's like a, a real appreciation for other minds, for others, other than us. Um, and I didn't realize that's obviously I didn't know that's where it would take me. Um, but I just, I just remember just how fascinated I was by how all these different beings interacted with, with me, with each other. Um, they were clearly intelligent. And so that was something that uh, I had a love for animals. And, uh, I've talked about this a couple of times. Um, what stopped me starting, what stopped me from, from eating meat anymore was actually, I went to get, um, we went to celebrate uh, uh, at the time my dad's birthday and he, he went and got a freshly slaughtered pig and I saw them kill the pig um, and it just felt totally and utterly wrong to me. I actually stopped eating pork um, that day. Um, and, and then I started to wake up to the realities of like modern factory farming, which was just something that just, just blew my mind that here I was with all of these animals who I cared about, I loved about, I played with, I spent time with. And, and here we were, you know, harming and hurting other animals. Um, and you know, it was, I wasn't limited to dogs and cats. I literally spent time with all sorts of animals and, uh, and it was something that I just, I, I didn't understand why we were doing it, why I was doing it. And so I slowly started to realize I had to stop, uh, eating animals. How old were you then? That was, uh, again, about 12, 12 years old. Right. So at that time, though, you had a love of sci-fi. Yeah. You had a love of animals, yeah. but you were not connecting the two at that point, right? No, yeah. no, not, not yet. So these were, these were separate journeys. Uh, my mother actually introduced me to a short story from Ursula Le Guin. Um, and I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but it's basically, um, oh my goodness, now I'm blanking on the actual, uh, it's those who walk away from Amelis. Um, and so those who walk away from Amelis was a short story and I won't ruin it. Um, but it basically was about this perfect society where there was something dark within that society that no one ever talked about, but they had to see it at least once. Um, I highly recommend it. It's a very short story. Um, and that woke, that short story woke me up. Wow. We're, we'll definitely include that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the reaction that I had to reading Isaac Bashevis Singer's story, The Slaughterer. Did you ever hear that? I, I know, I have not. It's also a very short story. It probably takes maybe 15, 20 minutes yeah. to read. But, you know, Singer was a, uh, a Holocaust survivor who ended up winning the Nobel Prize in Literature. And he wrote a lot of really fantastic novels. But this is just a short story, um, which is about um, basically somebody who really against his will gets brought in to become a slaughterer for this village. Huh. And the, um, I won't ruin everything, but the ghosts of the animals start hunting him. And it really, uh, you know, uh, just, it really explores the complicated relationship that we have with other animals and, uh, some of the more troubling aspects of it. Um, but anyway, both of those will be included in the show notes. Cause I, I too have a love of sci-fi. I too have a love of literature. So, um, I, you know, I definitely am going to read this story. And, and I know we share that Paul. Yeah. I know we share that love of science and sci-fi and literature. Interesting uh, enough. Now I've gotten more into history as well. Cool. So, so that, that's been something like history, weirdly reading about wars as hmm. well. Um, generals and things like things that I was never interested in before. Yeah, well, um, our mutual friend Josh Balk highly recommends Ron Chernow's book on Grant, 
um, oh. which is, uh, it's a lengthy tome, but I now know many people who have recommended this book to me. Not only not only Josh Balk, but also my coworker, Donny Kirkendall's father, uh, Jay Kirkendall, read it and re- recommended it to Perfect. me. I'm going to read it. Yeah. I'm definitely going to read it. Grant is an interesting guy uh, because, you know, this is a guy who really had a lot of ups and downs in his life. Like this guy was down and then, you know, becomes like one of the one of the generals who Lincoln appoints because nobody else is doing a good job, makes him general, and the press was excoriating him. He was doing a bad job. Everybody was saying that he should be fired or he should resign. People are calling on Lincoln to get rid of him. And, you know, he goes on to win the war uh, and become president himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a real example of somebody who was down and then up. It's very inspirational. And I often wonder about that, right? It's like, um, are heroes born in the fire, right? Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like in the darkest hours, that's when you truly see what someone is, yeah. right? Um, and so, so like, uh, I actually read uh, Abraham Lincoln's Team of Rivals. Oh, uh, yeah. And yeah. you can Doris see that. Doris good one. Doris Kearns, yep. Superb book. Um, and you can see that. Yeah, well, there's a uh, a great quote from Grant that is uh, not exactly on this, but he says, um, you know, he's talking about, this is later in, in his, uh, in his uh, autobiography after he's had the ups and the downs and the ups again. And he says, uh, this is a direct quote. He says, the friend in my adversity, I shall always cherish most. I can better trust those who help to relieve the gloom of my dark hours than those who are so ready to enjoy with me the sunshine of my prosperity. Beautiful. And it's a good reminder that yeah. if you know somebody who is down, you know, that's when they need you as a friend. Yeah. You know, everybody wants to be somebody's friend when they're up, yeah. but when they're down, it's a really great time to ensure yeah. that you're there for them as a friend. 100%. 100% my friend. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So, All right. So bring me up, Ryan. Yeah, so, all right, so, so, so get to the point in your story yes. where you start connecting these two and you start thinking that maybe there's a way that you can use this interest and love of science yeah. to actually do something for animals. So, so fast forward, uh, you know, I, I, I went and went to university, studied, uh, got my, my degrees, uh, in biology and in business. And I started working in the pharmaceutical industry and in biotech industry, developing human therapeutics. Um, I became kind of unhappy with what I saw, which was that uh, we were moving forward so glacially in the world of biotechnology um, and we're doing so little in other areas outside of human therapeutics. And then the, uh, the financial crash came, the, the great, you know, the, the recession uh, in 2008. And that led to what's now called the biohacker movement. So where myself and many others um, actually started to, to build little biotech labs in their kitchens, uh, living rooms, garages, um, that led to a whole bunch of biohacker spaces and a community, uh, both in, in, in the Silicon Valley, Los Angeles, and in New York and globally. Um, and at the time, I was one of the few people who, who's actually working in the commercial biotech industry. And I suddenly realized, I was like, wait a minute, um, people in tech can build for, you know, for not much money, they can build companies, they can build startups that go on to become Facebooks. Why can't we do that in biology and biotech? Mm. Um, If you had the basic equipment, couldn't you, as someone that understood biotech and biology, make a startup out of that? And uh, I started going down that path. Um, Myself and many others started, co-founded Counterculture Labs, which is a biohacker space in Oakland. Um, And then I started Berkeley Biolabs, and I'm trying to fast forward through all Mm. of these things. Um, and myself and my co-founder, Ron, Ron Shigeta, we, uh, both invested our own money in starting this little biotech incubator that no one cared about on the outskirts of Berkeley, except a couple of really great angel investors who backed us, which I'll forever be grateful for that. Um, 
And then, and then eventually we came across uh, the team at SOS Ventures and together we started IndieBio. Uh, IndieBio was, was really a combination of many of these different concepts and ideas around uh, low-cost biotech, helping people go from idea to proof concept. Um, it became very clear that entrepreneurs needed uh, not just the space, which we'd built with Berkeley Biolabs, but they needed money too. And that was one of my, my biggest frustrations with Berkeley Biolabs. We had space and scientists could work on their projects on weekends and evenings, but they couldn't afford to give up their, their day jobs. And so, uh, so we started IndieBio, uh, backed by SOS Ventures. Um, and it was myself, it was Arvind, and it was Ron. And we started helping entrepreneurs, uh, scientists, become, uh, scientists become entrepreneurs. One of my deep insights, and actually, I, and Josh Tetrick was, was a friend of mine back then, um, kind of blew my mind. When he got his first 500K check um, from Vinod Kosla, I suddenly realized I, I'd become a vegan. You know, I'd been plant-based vegan. Uh, I became a vegan because of, you know, it was an ethical thing for me. The environmental and the health came later. Um, but for me, it was just I, seeing how, how animals were mistreated in factory farms. I just couldn't, um, I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I could no longer, even though I love the taste of steak and meat and all that other good stuff, I just couldn't uh, get myself to support an industry which ethically I was against. And so, so I'd gone uh, vegan. Now it's been about a decade. Um, but, and I was like, this is, this is strange. I may have an opportunity to use science plus the fact that, um, you know, I believe that factory farms should end, that we shouldn't be using animals, sentient beings um, for food and then combine these two things. And so, you know, uh, I was introduced by Isha Dittar at New Harvest to, uh, uh, to Arturo at uh, what became Clara Foods. That's the recombinant, uh, recomb now the recombinant is a very successful recombinant egg company. So they make eggs, but without the chickens, they, they brew them in, in engineered yeast. Yes, and Arturo was the last guest on this show. So for yeah. people who listen to the show, if you didn't hear the last episode, go back and listen to Arturo's great interview. Yeah. So so suddenly I realized, you know, definitely thanks to Josh, um, there was stuff bubbling up with Beyond and Impossible. Back then, it's hard to remember because I don't know if you remember the chicken strips. Oh, yeah. Uh, the yeah. Beyond chicken strips. They were good, you know, but they weren't, you know significantly better than like Boca Burger or whatever else, but something was happening. Yeah, they were good for vegetarians. Yeah. They weren't necessarily fooling any meat eaters. No, no, it was kind of like if you closed your eyes and imagined you were eating a chicken tender, <laughs> maybe a little bit more of a slippery chicken tender, like you were almost yeah. there. You got to really cover it or yeah. fry it, or deep fry it or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, they were good. I liked them. They, uh, me too. Yeah. I love them too, but I was yeah. a vegetarian at that point too. So I was like, oh, it's close enough to meat. I'm good. Um, we hadn't seen the revolution that we've seen now in plant-based meats, which, you know, Beyond's is superb, Impossible is superb. I'm a huge fan of both companies and uh, both founders, both the Browns. Um, and so, um, you know, it became very clear to me. I was like, wait a minute, all this science fiction that I read, and this was something that was going on in my mind, uh, we can actually make real. So lab-grown meat, you know, using, using biotech to make bioidentical products. Yeah. And, and IndieBio, I mean, has come to incubate some of the most important companies. I mean, big names now are companies that you originally funded. So exactly. Memphis Meats, Geltor, yeah. Clara Foods, yeah. um, and the list goes on. The, the, the Knock Company down across yeah. Latin America. Yeah. So that, that I'm particularly proud of that one because at the time people thought it was crazy. They were like, oh, this is just a U.S. thing. 
And I was like, no, this is really a global thing. <laughs> and we, we backed Matthias from Notco. Yeah. Um, we were his first investors for the Not company as well. That's really cool. So uh, recently, Ryan, there was a Bloomberg article profiling you, basically yeah. saying that there are there's basically not as much attention on Latino entrepreneurs as yeah. there ought to be. That's yeah. the essential yeah. argument. Yeah. Um, yet it seems to me like you uh, being a Latino yourself is why you're the profile yeah. of this article. Yeah. But you know, when you bring in people like Arturo and Matthias and others, yeah. like has that been a special focus for you or is that just happened to be coincidental? It, it hasn't. Um, but I, you know, the way that I view things is that, and from the beginning of when we started IndieBio, the focus was always, you know, and this is my personal focus as well as I think the entire team's focus, we always back diversity of thought. Mm. And so when you're looking for diversity of thought, it, it's actually, uh, it's, it's powerful to look for people that are different in every way. Mm. And so for me, I was always looking for difference rather than sameness. The, the pattern, it was kind of flipped pattern recognition um, the other way around. And I realized that um, at that earliest stage, um, we would have to help these founders essentially co-found their companies to build them from the from the ground up. Many of these companies literally had uh, you know, tissue paper with some notes. Yeah, that's one of the things that I was so impressed by your work at IndieBio about was that you had these people who were scientists and they they had a really cool idea, but they had no idea how to start a company. No. And they would have no idea how to run a company. Yeah. And you came in and helped them. So just, let's just take, you know, the most successful of these companies yeah. really, which I would presume is Memphis Meats. Yeah, you know, they I would just say, raised yeah. 161 million Series B. Um, but you were their first check, right? Yep. I yep. mean, they, exactly you know, right. I, yeah. my, my recollection when, when I was interviewing you for the book Queen Meat was that Uma emailed you and you responded within like an hour, right? Was yeah, it was say? actually, I think it was, so again, Isha turns up again from New Harvest. Mm -hmm. um, and Isha connected me to Uma and she said, there's this really, brilliant, this really brilliant professor with a brilliant, really brilliant scientist in his lab. They're working on smooth muscle cells. And at the time, I think they were mostly focused on a uh, human heart. Mm -hmm. uh, Uma, many people don't know this, but Uma is a medical doctor and a professor. He has a cardiologist. Cardiology, right? right? Cardi I mean, he is. He was head of his department. Um, and, and, and They should know that if they've read Queen Meat. They, they should know that. They should, and they should have read Queen Meat, especially if they're listening to your podcast. Highly recommended, by the way. It's a great book. Probably the best in documenting the historical aspects of this industry. That's very nice of you. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so Isha connected us. And I can't remember exactly how Uma and I uh, connected, whether it was by email or text message, uh, could well have been email, but it was very quick. Very quick. Um, the fact that he was working on clean meat was something that was on my, my wish list. Mm. Uh, I actually tried to convince Mark Post to start a company. Mm. And, and so I, I actually had, a, Mark Post was very gracious, very, very nice guy, I like him a lot. Um, he s set up a, a, a Skype call at the time. We didn't have Zoom back then. Uh, and uh, he was like, look, I, you know, I, have, I have guaranteed money when I'm ready to start a company. I, I want to do it very methodically and I want to do it right. Um, and I was, at the time, I was like, look, we have all this money. We have 200K to offer you. <laughs> um, and I was, I was very excited because our first batch of companies, we only had 50K and we were able to increase it 200K per company. And, uh, you know, it just wasn't an exciting number for Mark and he wanted to do it correctly. Um, and so by the time Isha connected me to Uma, I had this, I knew that we were at a very unique moment in time where I felt that science could really be transformed if we embraced the entrepreneurial spirit, right? The, the science of clean meat. And so, um, she connected me to Uma, Uma and I talked and Uma saw it very clearly. You know, he was, he was uh, vegan from the beginning. He was a scientist. He saw clearly where the industry was going. And, uh, and I was like, Uma, I think this is a historic moment in time. If you're the first 
to start a clean meat company focused exclusively on clean meat. There was, there was actually a company prior to that many years that had attempted this. And we can talk a little bit about that, but this was, this was really the first clean meat company that was focused just on making clean meat. Um, and, uh, and Uma agreed and we cut it check with him and we helped him get Memphis meats off the ground. And this is a really big gamble for him because, you know, it's not like he was some young kid who was just starting out his career. You know, he was a very successful cardiologist. He was like the head of the Minnesota Heart Association. Um, You know, he was about to enter into the most economically lucrative decade of his career in his 40s as a cardiologist. You know, this is a really big gamble uh, for somebody to take. And, you know. Huge gamble, huge gamble. I mean, he he saw clearly right and he saw that he had a unique moment in time and that this could could be if it worked would be historical yeah right yeah. And a historical moment and uh and to his credit he he took it he left his job yeah professor well to your credit for funding it you yeah know, i think <laughs> yeah. about it, like nobody else had ever funded anything like this in the history of humanity so it, it was nuts <laughs> by the way everyone, everyone was like you are the most nuts guy i know you're funding uh gmo egg whites you know lab grown meats and i was like look this is the future yeah, yeah. And, and 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 one of the deep insights that i've always held is whenever i whenever i doubt myself i always look back into the history of biology into history of our species um and Sapiens, very powerful book, which I know you and I both love. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and I know. And by the way, again, Clean Meat. Read, read the Clean Meat book. Uh, Noval, you are uh, Yuval, no, yeah. Yuval Harari. Uh, actually, wrote the. Um, he wrote the forward for the book. Forward for which the book. Many people have said is the best part of the book. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> loved it. Um, you know, since since the dawn of humanity, from fire forward, technology has always won. And so, whenever there's been technology which is transformational. You know, whether that's, and I know, Paul, you've spoken a lot about going from uh, horse, horse and buggy to, to automobiles, like we have, or, or whale blubber to electricity for lighting, like technology always wins. And so I was like, even though some people seem to have a yuck factor around this, technology will win. This is the right technology. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And, you know, the reality is, is that if you have a food that tastes good, and that is affordable, people are going to eat it. Now, it doesn't mean everybody is going to be first in line to eat it, but it does mean that people will eat it. And of course it has to be safe. That's rule number one, needless to say, it's not gonna come onto the market if it's not safe. But, you know, presuming that it is shown to be safe and that it tastes good and that it's affordable, there's going to be a lot of people who are lining up to eat these foods. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly you and I will be in that line. Oh, for sure. And, and you and I have already eaten some of these foods. Yeah, so. yeah many, many times, many times. Yeah. yeah. So um, how does it feel for you? I mean, you look back and you think about now there's literally hundreds of millions of dollars pouring into yes. this space. You know, Arturo at Clara yeah. Foods has brought in 50 million. Uma yeah. has now brought in uh, somewhere closer to like 181 million total, I believe. Yeah. I'm not sure what um, Geltor has brought in, but I'm sure it's tens of millions. Yeah. 20 to 30 million at least, yeah. Yeah, so these companies that you help to incubate yeah. and then you look at this space and you look back and you see all of this money pouring into it that who knows how long it would have been delayed if you yeah. hadn't been willing to go out there and do this? Like, how do you feel looking back on this? Uh, it kind of blows my mind, right? It, it was, it was. you often, like, w- when I think about it, when I think about these now large companies, I think about the founders, the people themselves. Like, I, I you know, I remember uh, Nick and Alex from Geltor. I remember them at Princeton when we were talking. They're like, we have this idea and we, we think this will work. Um, you know, and now they're actually selling collagen, like non-animal-derived collagen. Amazing. 
Um, and so to me, it's kind of, I'm incredibly proud of the people. Um, and that's something actually that I've, that I've loved. And I've realized, you know, starting uh, in obviously wild earth, I love helping people and developing people. Um, that's something that as a manager, as you grow, um, you can be a really incredible manager if you love developing leaders. So let's talk about that yeah. because you had a shift in your career where did, you yes. went from incubating other people's companies to actually founding your own. So yes. tell me about that. Why did you do it and why pet food? Yeah. So, so at the time, so we'd been incredibly successful in IndieBio. Uh, it was actually probably one of the hardest things I've had to do. Um, leaving IndieBio in the, like probably our most successful uh, moments, we'd funded a whole bunch of companies. Uh, probably a dozen plus future food companies, which are now uh, pretty famous. That doesn't include the other therapeutic biomaterial companies and just really incredible founders that we'd worked with. In total, I've worked with hundreds of founders, um, over 80 biotech companies by the time I left uh, IndieBio, which I was incredibly proud of all of them. Even the ones that failed, they tried hard um, to make, some, you know, make their vision a reality. Um, and I started to get the itch. I started to get the bug of like building again. Um, I, I basically would build with these founders. Um, and after a while, it was like, yeah, I know how to get you from idea uh, to seed funding. What I don't know how to do is I don't know how to help you scale. And I realized that started to become an issue. And in parallel, I had this idea that wouldn't go away. It was a long time animal lover. I'd, I'd grown up with tons of different animals, lots of pets. Um, and I kept wondering, what am I feeding them when I'm feeding them this dog food, right? Or this cat food. Um, We'd seen Impossible Foods, we'd seen Beyond Meat, we'd seen Memphis Meats, and now uh, dozens of other clean meat companies and plant-based companies. Um, and, and I didn't really see anyone doing this for the pet food industry. There was no Beyond Food, Impossible Foods, or Memphis Meats of pet food. Um, and I kept trying to give this idea away. I was like, there's got to be someone else who's a better person to start a pet food company. I know nothing about the pet food industry. Um, there has to be some. I'm a biotech therapeutics and future food guy. Um, and, uh, it just, it just, it, it was, it was kind of like starting Indie Bio or Berkeley Biolabs or Counterculture Labs. Sometimes things just don't exist and you're the one that has to build it. If you see it in your mind's eye, that is your responsibility to try and build it. And so, uh, I went out and, uh, and I said, okay, I think I'm going to have to build this company and myself and my three other co-founders. So I actually left with, with Ron, who was my co-founder at Indie Bio, uh, to start it. Uh, Kristen Werman, who is also our co-founder of Brillo Estrada, who's uh, actually our, our chief product officer. Um, and we started, I started to try and raise money. What was interesting is um, a lot of the VCs that I pitched in Silicon Valley uh, knew me, um, knew me through my work with IndieBio. And they were like, hey, if you start a cancer company or if you start a human food company, I'll back you. If you start a pet food company, I won't. Hmm. And so I got that literally from dozens of people, that response from dozens of people. Um, and there were three investors, three great investors, and I'll always be thankful for them. Um, so Lisa at Stray Dog Capital, uh, Amy at Veg Invest, um, and then Sonia and um, Aiden at Felicis Ventures who backed us. So these are Lisa Feria, yeah. Amy Trakinski, and, yeah. and what's Sonia's last name? And, and Sonia Arison. Arison. Yeah. And you. Aiden Senkut. So they... Um, between the four of them, they, they invested, they put the first million dollars into our company. Um, and the vision was to make cleaner, more sustainable pet food. Uh, the more I started looking into pet food, food, the more messed up and broken, I started to realize it actually was. So for those of us that, that love our animals, love our dogs, love our cats, 
um, we are we are feeding them uh, contaminated meat. There's no other way to to look at it. It's their supply chain is totally and utterly broken. They are fed non-human grade meat. This is the meat that goes bad in grocery stores. Uh, the FDA has found that they are even throwing in the styrofoam and the plastic wrapping around those you know those wrapped plastic uh, meat uh, like minced meat. When that goes bad, that goes to the renderer, and the FDA has found that oftentimes they're throwing the plastic in with the old meat. Um, and of course, as we know, uh, burnt plastic is carcinogenic. Um, there have been contaminated uh, meats with euthanasia drug in them. We think it's uh, probably at least horse, euthanized horse, because you don't really euthanize farm animals. Um, and this is, this is happening like constantly. I think about a year ago, there were about 100 million units of dog food and cat food that recalled because they had euthanasia drug. So the entire thing is broken. And, uh, and on top of that, um, so there's the contaminated meat problem. On top of that, I didn't realize how much of a problem it was. So for those of us that, that not only care about the, you know, the animals, but care about the environment, um, 25 to 30% of the meat we consume in the U.S. goes to feed our pets. So three, zero, 30%. So if you actually care about the environment and you're not looking at pet food, you're missing 30% of the problem. So from an environmental perspective, it's obvious why yeah. you would want to do yeah. something like this for a lot of pet, uh, for, for a lot of, uh, pet parents, my guess is that they would hear what you're talking about, about the, yeah. dis the disgusting nature of, of much of the mainstream pet food. Yeah. And they would think, ah, I should, you know, buy human grade meat instead. Yes. And you're saying the solution is instead, no, 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 buy this plant-based dog food. So, exactly. So persuade them why they should do that. Yeah. So, so plant-based dog food. So, so there is a common misconception uh, around many people, including people who eat plant-based in many different ways, that dogs are carnivores. Mm -hmm. They're not. They're actually omnivores like us. And actually, when you look at the literature, so when you look at, I think there was a paper published in 2016 in Nature, which is one of the leading scientific journals, it, it actually highlights the evolution um, of dogs from wolves and how their biology has evolved to a more starch-based diet. Hmm. And so um, and there are even some theories around the fact that dogs actually need more starch because they've co-evolved with us. And so since the agricultural revolution, dogs have been with us. They've been eating with us. And so it makes sense that actually they can survive and thrive on a plant-based diet. A lot of people ask for evidence of this. Uh, if you look at India, uh, Almost all of those dogs are actually vegetarian dogs. Huh, that's funny. Right? So, so literally an entire country. The doll dogs. Yes, the doll dogs, the chapati dogs. <laughs> um, so dogs can survive and thrive. In fact, one of the best examples of this, and we're starting to see more and more examples of this, that dogs like us can do very, very well on a plant-based diet. It actually may be better for them. Um, there was a dog called Bramble. I don't know if you're familiar with Bramble. I am, but for those who aren't, tell us about Bramble. Yeah, so, so Bramble, she was a dog that grew up eating lentils, rice, and uh, nutritional yeast. By the way, Wild Earth actually does have yeast in it. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to yes, that. Yes, we're going to get to that. Um, and she lived to 27 years of age. This is a French dog, right? Uh, she was a, a, a collie. She was a, a- I'm sorry, a dog in France. Yeah, she, uh, she was in, in, in the UK. Oh, in the UK. Yeah, okay. Yes. yes. So she was, Bramble was in the UK. Okay. Um, she lived to 27 years of age. Just for those of you that are uh, uh, listening and not familiar with the average age of a dog, the average age of a dog is about 11.5 years. The average lifespan of a dog. Sorry, the yeah. average lifespan of a dog is about 11.5 yeah. years. Yeah. Uh, little dogs tend to live longer. Uh, bigger dogs, unfortunately, tend to die a little sooner. Um, it's mind-blowing that, that uh, Bramble's lifespan was more than double. 
Amazing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, look, that's awesome. There's some anecdotal evidence that anecdotal. these dogs that these dogs do well, but let's hear about what's actually in it. Cause you mentioned that there's yeast, but um, at first at least, and correct me if I'm wrong yeah. about this, at first the idea for Wild Earth was basically we're gonna do a biotech type dog food, Correct. right? Yeah. And you were, you, uh, were growing koji, yep. which is this fungus that, mm -hmm. well, I'll let you tell the story, but you're growing koji. Um, and tell us what the benefit of that is and why you might've switched the formula. Yeah. So, so the benefit was that we really thought that there was an entirely new way to grow really high quality protein, which is focused on fungi. Mm -hmm. So koji and yeast are both fungi, uh, not, not mushrooms, but part of that same kingdom of life. Um, both koji and yeast have about 40% protein. A good steak has about 30% protein. Um, and so this was a really great way of getting around the, where do you get that protein from basically? Mm -hmm. And, and so the answer was actually from fungi. Um, but we had a really interesting insight early on from our customers. Um, turns out that, you know, there's this saying, and I, I don't know who it comes from, but very little survives, uh, your, your first interaction with the marketplace, right? Yeah, it's like, you know, no business plan survives first contact with reality. Exactly, yeah. and, and reality is the marketplace. <laughs> right. And so once we started selling our products to consumers, uh, it became very clear that consumers didn't know what koji was. They actually thought it was a goji berry often. <laughs> so <laughs> they're like, oh yeah, I love those goji berries. I eat them all the time. And we realized that actually uh, consumers understood what plant-based was. They didn't understand what fungi-based was. And mm. so we we really changed the way that we described our product. Our product is still um, a product of science. It's something that we looked at the latest in nutritional science we worked with our chief veterinarian, Dr. Ernie Ward, to develop it, and we worked with a lot of other scientists and nutritionists uh, to reimagine food with today's 21st century science. So looking at things like the microbiome, looking at newer ingredients, things that we knew had health benefits around it. So is koji still playing a role? It is, it is. So it, it still pr plays a role, uh, particularly for its prebiotic effect. I see. We, we have it within the within the, our treats and also within our food. And is it just a smaller portion it's of it? a smaller portion of okay, it, yeah. Got it. And what we found is that um, it, it primarily, um, we we actually think yeast is is an even better source mm -hmm. uh, for protein. So we use yeast as a primary protein source, and then we also use a lot of plant proteins and, and plant carbohydrates as well. So I think I've heard you say before, like a, a primary ingredient is a nutritional yeast, right? Yes, exactly. Which you know, I as you know, Ryan, I am an avid fan of nutritional yes. yeast. I consume it every day of my life. Yep. I have often thought that if there is some type of post-apocalyptic world that I have survived, one of the things I will miss most about civilization is the existence of nutritional yeast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, it would be horrible. It would be, you know, I would give up lots before I would yep. give it up. So, uh, but for folks who aren't initiated, yes. they don't know about the wonders of nutritional yeast, just briefly tell us what is it and why is it so important that you're making it a primary ingredient? So, so nutritional yeast has a whole host, as, as the name itself describes, yeast itself is a very nutritious food. Uh, we, humanity, and our pets have been consuming it literally for thousands of years. The Romans would, would actually march with sourdough. Um, and so the sourdough bread, actually the yeast would, uh, would transform a, a less uh, uh, nutritional bread into a high nutritional value. So high amounts of vitamins, uh, more minerals, and then, uh, and then and just more protein as well. Mm -hmm. So, but that, that's a, a sourdough yeast, like, but we're talking about nutritional yeast yes, here specifically. Yeah, 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 yeah. So tell us about nutritional yeast. High in, in B vitamins. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a whole host of, um, it actually, so actually one of the interesting things when you look at nutritional yeast and humans and 
our pets and dogs is that we have umami uh, receptors. We both have savory receptors. And so uh, the dogs and us love the savoriness because mm. it's high protein. So the yeast itself, um, and I mentioned that a little bit earlier, is high in protein and it has uh, a diverse amount of amino acids. Mm. So what's really important in the protein that we and our pets consume is the actual the quality of and diversity of the amino acids within the proteins, not its actual source, whether it's plant or fungi or, or animal. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, to clear up some misconceptions about it, um, you know, nutritional yeast is an inactive yeast. So yeah, it, yeah, you know, yeah. you're, it's a, it's dead yeast. Yes. So you're, you, not, you, you're not getting any yeast infections. Right. Yeah, so that, that has nothing to do with the yeast <laughs> that we consume. It, the, the, it needs a new name. Yeah. You know, one of the issues, you know, people have suggested all these names for nutritional yeast because it sounds repulsive. Yeah. I mean, nutritional yeast just, it's like the worst of both worlds. Um, and so people have suggested noosh for it, which I think sounds uh, pretty it's, bad it's, as well. It's kind it's kind of, I've, I've, I've heard people use that word before. I think for those that are not familiar with the niche. No, no, I, I have a better one, I think. Oh, Here, I'm, I'm going to put it out to the world right yeah, now. Yeah, what's, what's, I'm ready. I would just call it Golden Flakes. I like Golden Flakes. Yeah, you it's know. beautiful. Yeah, who wouldn't want Golden Flakes on their food? I, I, it's I, like I a high-class meal. I, I may start adapting <laughs> Golden Flakes. Yeah, it's like, good. What you say? It's Golden Flakes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, on the ingredient label, Golden Flakes, you can parentheses whatever the Latin name of the organism is, but just Golden Flakes. That. I, I, I put nutritional yeast on my food all the time. Yeah. I love it, and it's just so fantastic for yeah. a whole host it's, of reasons. It's high in protein. It's mm -hmm. often fortified with B12. I mean, full it's of, just- Full of vitamins yeah. and minerals. It's just a, an incredible superfood. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I, I hope that this will spark a revolution in the naming of this because yes. Golden Flakes would be a big improvement and probably lead to higher adoption of it. Um, okay. So you now have started Wild Earth, yes. Ryan. Yes. You've got this company. Yep. You're making uh, pet food that you're basing it on yeast and yep. other healthy ingredients. Yep. You uh, have had a tremendous ride, right? Yep. You, it's been, it's been, been a wild ride. I mean, you've, in, you've raised from, you know, billionaires like Peter Thiel, Mark, Mark Cuban on Shark, Shark Tank. Tank. Yep. You were yep. on Shark Tank and you were one of the half of, of participants who actually got a deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a very tough deal. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, Mark keeps me on my toes on a weekly basis still. Um, How nervous were you when you went out there? Super nervous. Mm. Like it's really hard to describe. A lot of people think that it's just a room, but it's actually a studio. So you mm. have, you're pitching, the sharks are trying to put you off because they want something that's very memorable um, for the camera. They're not going to stop rolling. So if you trip and fall, that's how you go out. Like that's <laughs> how you, you trip and fall. They're going to show that because it's kind of entertaining for the audience. It's a show after all. It's a live show. It's a real, it's not a live show. It's a film show, but it's, it's a real show. Um, and uh, there's just people like moving cameras around, moving sound equipment. So it's a very distracting place to pitch. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. When uh, when you were there, presumably yeah. you were, you know, choking, you're feeling like you're going to just, you know, I can imagine what it would be like to be walking out onto that stage. So uh, you indicated that you were really nervous. What did you do? I know that you're, I know that you're a practitioner of meditation. Was that part of your preparation for I, this? I, I meditated a lot. Um, and actually even before going in, you know, just, just trying to clear my mind and get myself, um, sometimes I use what's called anchoring. Um, and so anchoring is a, is a practice that's used both by athletes uh, and also by uh, people who actually perform on stage. They anchor themselves in an emotional state. So it's basically doing a motion. Uh, I, I kind of just hold both my hands and push them down um, and getting myself into a mental state of when I was very successful, hmm. uh, reminding myself of that. Um, and then I also meditate as well. So it's 
It's an anchoring of emotional state and meditation. So is that what you're doing immediately before walking that, out? Literally, that's uh, so, so literally before I walked out, I anchored myself. So I'd meditated before you're waiting there to be called and for these, those big doors to open. And I kind of did this small movement, which I always do before, um, before a really big um, meeting. And I get myself into an emotional state and say, you know, this is going to be as successful as, and I just remember something very successful that I've done in the past. Um, and then I walk out with confidence and in that emotional state. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how different your mental state will affect what actually happens. It, it really is. It, and, it's truly incredible. And I was going on stage knowing full well at that time. So this was um, this was actually uh, the end of 2018. Um, we didn't we hadn't launched a product. Um, we raised a bunch of money uh, and we spent a lot of money on R&D uh, and we had no sales. Right. And so, <laughs> so I was going there with literally all the cardinal sins of Shark Tank that you don't do and a high valuation. <laughs> high valuation, zero yeah. revenue, no product. Yeah, Sounds no awesome. Product. What, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? <laughs> I really, I really, I was like, okay, well, uh, it turned out it was about 3.6 million people across the U.S. saw me that night. I was like, well, the only, as long as I don't look like a total and utter fool, that'll have been a win. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it turned out actually to have been really um, a pivotal moment for Wild Earth uh, as a brand um, that really, we, we went overnight, we became a brand that was recognized across the US mm -hmm. uh, and a company that was recognized across the US, which is something that we needed to have happen to be a successful dog food company. And how much have you raised so far in total? So total, we've raised $16 million. So, so here you are, the CEO now of this company, it's raised 16 million. Yep. You have 20 people working at the company yep. now. Mm -hmm. You presumably in the last couple of years of doing this have, have learned quite a lot. What would you say to the Ryan of two years ago if yep. you could go back and talk to him? Um, I would say get in the market as quickly as possible. Um, I always thought I understood that. Um, and now I really understand that the marketplace will teach you so much. So the sooner you can try your prototypes out, the sooner you can talk to your customers, the better mm -hmm. make the prototypes as early as you can and get feedback early on. I think that was one of our big challenges because we didn't know how people would interact with our product. Even, even just how we'd call our product, mm -hmm. uh, would have been very helpful. Yeah, that reminds me a little bit of what Reid Hoffman um, has said, where he famously says that, you know, if you're not embarrassed of the first product that you've released and you released it too late, yeah. um, you know, you, you need to release need to be embarrassed. it soon. And by the way, that's hard because a lot of people don't want to release embarrassing products. Yeah. And it's also hard if you are a food company because you have to release something that's safe. And so, you know, for us, one of the big challenges, and this is what this was a learning for me, I didn't realize how hard it would be to design a full and complete food for dogs. Mm. It's actually a lot of deep science. Uh, yeah, I've looked into a little bit to the AFCO standards. It's like the body that determines yeah. the, the nutritional standards for, for pet food. And it's amazing actually how strict it is. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, compared to like, if you're making food for humans, you can basically do whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in terms of the nutritional content of mm -hmm. the food, yep, yep. Uh, but for pet food, it, it's surprisingly high. Yeah. Cause it's not nutritionally complete. So the, the really important thing is um, if you're making a dog food or cat food, it has to have uh, essential nutrients and it's hard to uh, balance the essential nutrients plus a cost, which is going to be competitive um, in the marketplace. Um, and so, so that, that's always one of the big challenging things. I mean, for us, we erred on the side of higher quality ingredients and higher price. 
than uh, lower quality ingredients, lower price. What's the differential in price, let's say, between Wild Earth and like a mainstream like Purina type dog food? Like, it's, is it it's tw- probably, twice as expensive? Uh, it's probably 20 to 30 percent more expensive. Oh, that's say. it. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I mean, okay. we're it, it, it's uh, things like, uh, you know, where we get our vitamin and mineral premixes uh, or hmm. or the quality of the certain certain types of um, like uh, potato protein that we get. It's yeah. I mean, if you look at, um, like if you look at beyond meat or impossible foods, you know, they're often selling for like 300, 400% the cost of commodity beef. Yeah. Um, and if you're only at 20 or 30% higher than conventional dog food, yeah. it actually seems like not that high of a disparity relative to other plant-based options. True. True. But the challenge is that it's a highly competitive marketplace. And mm-hmm. so one of the big challenges is that even when you're only a little, you know, 20, 30% higher, um, there are a lot of consumers that are used to getting very inexpensive dog food. And so, um, you know, that's just not something we can compete with yet. So who's, is your target audience people who are eating plant-based themselves? Uh, no, no, okay. actually. So this is very interesting. So, so we, we grew, uh, we're not disclosing yet our, our financials, but like in 2019, we grew 50% month on month, which was um, very, very fast. Um, we learned a lot through that. One of the interesting things that we learned was uh, just the sheer size of the potential market for plant-based dog food. Um, We had a lot of people who were feeding Blue Buffalo, Purina, Pedigree, uh, Akana, Origin, uh, raw meat. We're switching over. And I talked to a lot of our customers and and I actually, I always make my email available, ryan at wildearth.com. I always want to hear from our customers. (laughs) Yeah. On the 23rd episode of this show, Josh Tetrick made his email available during the show. And he later told me that he received more than 50 emails from people who are listening. So (laughs) so we'll see how many people contact you, ryan at wildearth.com. Let's see if I can, I I can beat Josh's total. Um, Yeah. So, so, so basically, um, no, and, and I do that on purpose. I want to hear from our customers. I think that's the most important thing that a CEO can do is really be as connected to your customers as possible. Uh, We have tens of thousands of customers. And so I always want to hear from them when there's something that's not quite right or something we can change or even ideas on how to make new products. Um, And so, so yeah, so that, that, that's, that's been a huge journey and a huge learning. Um, I'm trying to think in terms of like other, other kind of deep insights on the marketplace um, we're we're just not, we are not, uh, for people who are plant-based, vegan or vegetarian, we're for everyone. And so what we're finding is that people will, uh, move over from like raw meat. That was actually Mm -hmm. the most surprising. So when I talked to our raw meat customers who switched over to wild earth, I was like, you, you do realize that we're a plant-based product. Like, yeah, we've been looking for clean protein. Hmm. These are actually people who are very, very informed, who actually read about the uh, FDA recalls of pet food and actually don't want to feed their dogs contaminated meat or, yeah. or other you know, uh, issues that they found in the supply chain. Do you think that they are feeding their dogs exclusively wild earth? No, mm-hmm. no. And in fact, what we found is that... Um, so that there, there are a bunch of megatrends that are affecting uh, the pet food space. And so it's a huge space. You know, it counts for about 30% of the meat consumption in the U.S. And by the way, it's growing even faster globally. So uh, China and India are growing about 20% mm. uh, every year. Um, and actually, China is on pace, I believe, this year to outpace for total number of pet dogs, uh, outpace the U.S. Wow. So to become the largest market for dog food. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that they are... Um, uh, 
they, they are definitely mixing different products. Uh, we'll often find that they'll say, Hey, I love wild earth. I mix in a little healthy fish every once in a while, a little, little chicken. Um, and so this humanization trend is that people are feeding their dogs better, higher quality food because they're family members. And so they want, they're focused on their health. Yeah. You know, one of my, uh, pet peeves, pun intended is the thought that uh, dogs or cats for that matter should eat the same food every meal, mm -hmm. which just seems so boring. And it seems like no human wants to do that. You don't want to eat the same thing for dinner that you had for lunch, yeah. let alone eat the same meal every day. And I'm not trying to say that they have the same exact interests that we do, but these are animals who evolved with a much more diverse diet than what they currently eat. Most definitely. And uh, I, I do think there's probably a sense of uh, boredom as being a really big animal welfare problem for, yeah. for pets, yeah. um, especially like indoor animals only. Yeah. And uh, I'm not advocating for outdoor cats, but I am saying that the... Uh, the idea that they have such monotonous lives yeah. uh, is very troubling to me, yeah. including in their diet and in their behavior and all that. And so when I had a dog named George, um, who was a very cute three-legged pit bull, uh, I always tried to feed him different things. Like I tried to, lots of different dogs' food, fed him lots of types of foods that I was eating myself. Yeah. And so he, I felt like he had a well-rounded diet because he wasn't eating the same thing every yeah. single meal. I'm sure you would prefer for them to eat Wild Earth every meal, but you'll have to come up with a suite of products so they can vary. Between yeah, honestly, that's the direction that we're going. Going yeah, so, okay. so I actually, I do think diversity in diet is actually mm -hmm. a very good thing for, for dogs. I highly encourage it and we encourage it. Um, so often what a lot of the pet parents that our customers will do is they, they will use our, um, our dog food as a base. It's really important to get enough vitamins and minerals mm -hmm. and enough amino acid, the, the right amino acid profile for, for dogs. Um, but then adding in extras, you know, like fresh greens or some fruits, dogs, you know, some, like apples, bananas. I love giving apples, bananas. And sometimes, and, and, and I know soy is not popular. I think soy is fantastic. <laughs> I think dogs love soy. They actually love tofu. Um, so, so I also feed a little tofu too. Um, I, I'm like you, Paul, like, I think that dogs should have variety in their meals, but I think that it is important that they have, um, they have a, a base uh, food that is nutritionally complete. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm with you. So let's just look at the big picture, Ryan. Like, yeah. you know, there's so many people who want to change the world. They want to do something good for the planet, mm -hmm. for animals, or for whatever it is that they care about. You have chosen from really the beginning of your career to use business as an opportunity to thrust the issues that you're concerned about yeah. into the limelight mm -hmm. and in, into making real progress. Yeah. Uh, what would you recommend? Like, why why have you chosen that as opposed to any other pathway that you might have chosen to, to make a change in the world? I, I think it's because it's once I, I once had advice in terms of uh, I was asking various different successful people, you know, what should I do with my life? Um, and the feedback that I got was do something that even if no one paid you to do it, you would still do it. And, and for me, that's been the most powerful advice. It's like, ultimately, if, if I never make a, you know, a dime uh, off of doing the things that I do, uh, would I spend my time doing them? The answer is yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Wild Earth, even if we hadn't raised money, I would still be grinding away trying to build Wild Earth because I believe it's right for, for pets and for the planet. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe that, that, you know, I am fortunate enough to actually make a salary trying to make the world a better place. It's, an, it's, it's surreal to me, actually. It's, it's amazing, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, I have a lot of gratitude. And so I focus on my meditation practice around gratitude. I have a lot of gratitude that we can do this, yeah. that we have the ability to live in such a great country that allows us the freedom to do things that we, we care about. You know, there are many other people who don't have that opportunity. And so I'm thankful. I'm thankful for friends like you, Paul. I'm thankful 
for this entire community. I'm thankful for the people that um, support us, right? You know, when you look at um, people who are out there and literally don't make a dime, who are activists or who are doing really important work that doesn't pay, um, I'm grateful for them too. Sure. Yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting you mentioned gratitude. My wife, Tony, uh, turned me on to an app called Happy Feed, which is a free app where basically it just prompts you every day to, at the end of the day, uh, put down three things that happened that day for which you're grateful. And it's really helpful. So I use it every night. And it's helpful because you, it, once you start doing it for a while and you notice, then you go throughout your day scanning, looking for things to be grateful for, because like, oh, I'm gonna have to do this tonight. Yeah. And you can go back and look and say, oh, like two years ago, this is what I was grateful for. And you go back and you remember the things that actually made you happy because being grateful obviously is shown to be one of the greatest ways to make yourself happier. Yeah. And uh, so I, you know, I use uh, Happy Feed and uh, encourage others too as well. Sounds because amazing. It's, it's really, amazing. yeah, it's very simple. Yeah. You know, it's maybe one minute a day, just write three things that you yeah. were grateful for. That day, but it's actually quite helpful in changing the way that you view the world. I love that. Yeah. I love that suggestion. Yeah, I mean, I, and and talking about apps, uh, Calm app is something that I use regularly. I, I heard they just raised a huge amount. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. It's <laughs> funny, right? And meditation can be lucrative. Yeah, it's that's a, right. It's a very weird thing. It's like you're beyond an impossible and calm and headspace. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe we're in a unique moment in our world that um, you know. Uh, concepts that are good for people, good for the animals, good for the planet um, can exist. And that's a really exciting thing. I noticed uh, actually just recently, a day or two ago, Jeff Bezos announced that he's devoting um, $10 billion of his own money uh, to fighting climate change. It's great. Right? It's an amazing thing. Yeah. Uh, I know that he gets attacked for obviously some of the practices at Amazon that he definitely needs to do better at. But the thing is, it's still an incredible thing. Yeah, I mean, just to keep it real, I mean, $10 billion is uh, probably um, uh, maybe even near 10% of yeah. his total wealth. Yeah. How many people are giving 10% of their wealth away? Now, admittedly, he's still got like 90 some billion. So, <laughs> you know, to him, it doesn't actually change anything of his day-to-day -day life. But I do think it's pretty admirable for anybody to give away 10% yeah. of everything they have. Now, I mean, you know, I, I, you know, you could say, well, when you have that much, you should give away 99%, yeah. which uh, frankly, I would agree with. Um, but still, it's, you know, among the most amazing things that anyone has done, yeah. really. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it, it's, it's like, it's very easy to criticize people. It's much harder to actually be the one doing yeah. the hard things. Yeah, and I guess I should back up because I presume a lot of his wealth is in Amazon stock, which is important for him functionally to have yeah. as well. So, yeah. you know, I, I take back the 99% yeah. comment, but if it was all cash, that wasn't yeah. genius, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you're not gonna find me criticizing. I, I you know, I often will um, comment that it's much easier for people who aren't on the field to know how the people on the field ought to be playing. Yeah. They'll say, oh, why didn't he run that way? Why didn't they yeah. throw to that person? Why didn't they, they didn't see that hole? It's like, well, when you're on the field, you know, it looks a lot different. You don't know what it's like until no. you're on the field, no. for sure. I have a lot of empathy for people who are trying to create change in the world. It is not easy. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I have a general belief that most people are good people. And so that's whenever, whenever, you know, a Twitter war starts up or whatever else, like I will usually uh, side with, with, the concept that that person is a good person, even if they've made a mistake, mm. right? And so, because um, I think it's too easy to go the other way around. It's like, oh, that's a bad person. Well, that's a bad person. That's a bad person. It's humanity as a whole is generally good. Like that is my belief. And that's something I'm going to stick to probably till the end of my days. I love my life 
uh, in humanity because of it. I don't want to hate uh, humanity. And so I think that, you know, your perspective on how you view things is very powerful. I think that it is a much stronger place to start from uh, interacting even with, you know, your quote unquote enemies from the perspective of they are fundamentally a good person. They just disagree with you in certain areas. Yeah, it reminds me of the uh, Lincoln quote that the best way to destroy an enemy is to make him your friend. Yeah, and, that's a great, yeah. it's a great quote. <laughs> yeah. So Ryan, wrapping up here, um, if there are people who look and say, this Ryan Bethencourt dude looks like he's really doing awesome yeah. things, I would like to try to do something. Yeah. Maybe they don't want to start a pet food company, yeah. maybe they do. Yeah. But what resources would you recommend to them, uh, whether books or any other resources that have been helpful to you that you think that they would benefit from consuming? Yeah, so I think that there's, I mean, there's there's, there's a wealth of books that I highly recommend that they start at. Usually it's actually probably better to look at the autobiographies of people who've done great things that you admire. Whoever that person is, start there and start to understand who they are. Um, I voraciously consume content now, whether it's podcasts, whether it's audiobooks, whether it's actual books, historical autobi autobiographies, uh, history, art. Um, so I think that there, there are many starting places. Um, uh, I'm trying to think one of, one of the most powerful books, and I know this is controversial, but I don't shy away from controversy, um, is Peter Thiel's, uh, zero to one. Yes. Uh, it, for me, uh, Peter Thiel actually really deeply understands the challenge of going from zero, nothing, an idea to one, which is something. And so the insights you get there are, can be very counterintuitive from his book, um, and I highly recommend it. Great. Okay, well, we'll include a link to that in the show notes for sure. Um, so uh, finally, Ryan, if there are people out there who are thinking, I'd really like to make a difference in the world, I too want to start yeah. my own company, yeah. are there any ideas that you have for businesses that you're not pursuing that you wish that somebody else would? Oh, yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, Yes. So let me, let me think about that. So um, I think that there is still an incredible uh, amount of opportunity within the plant-based space. I think we're only just at the beginning of the beginning. Um, I think that there's an incredible amount of opportunity in the cell-based meat space. We've, we still haven't sol solved the structured meat problem. Um, and that's something that I, I think there would be dozens more companies that will evolve. I think that wherever you are in the world, if you're listening to this podcast, there's an opportunity to create a a uh, national champion within your city or within your country um, that moves these concepts forward. Like I, what I love is people are like, oh, Beyond, Beyond Meat has done the, the burger thing, so there will never be another Beyond Meat. Uh, and then Futuro Burger pops up in Brazil, right? And mm -hmm. takes Brazil by storm. And it's like, literally, that's not true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, there's tons of opportunity. Yeah, what's also so funny to think about is, you know, people are like, oh, well, you know, you have a beyond an impossible. Well, it still is less than 1% of the meat market. Yeah. You know, you look at like plant-based milk is 13% of the fluid milk market. Well, plant-based meat is still less than 1% of all meat sold. So these are great companies. They're huge compared to zero for sure. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that the space is saturated no. by any means. No. I mean, there's room for McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, Arby's, Sonic, Denny's, and so on. Like you go yeah. on and on and on, all these fast food on companies. And, and there's room for all of them. So yeah. surely there's room for lots of these plant-based meat companies, lots of room for cultivated meat companies, uh, for sure. And, and, and just one thing that I'll add to that in terms of if you're looking for a space to build in, um, biology is infinite. And so I say that because within every unique thing we find in biology, there are industries hidden within that. Uh, I'll give you one example. We now know that 
biology harnesses quantum effects, right? To do things, to capture photons in, in the chlorophyll molecule, to give us literally life on this planet, right? So, so the chlorophyll molecule in plants harnesses lights using quantum effects. Fascinating. That's room temperature quantum mechanics. That is, there are literally industries within that. And throughout biology, there are examples of uh, biology using quantum effects. We don't know the, what, what industries that will... Could you think of one? Um, yeah, I mean, just in terms of um, room temperature quantum, uh, quantum computation. Right? I actually think that you could actually look at the way that biology harnesses uh, quantum effects and probably design better uh, cheaper room temperature, uh, growable quantum machines. Mm. I know it sounds like science fiction, but the, the thing is the, um, the effects already happen. And so I know we're going way outside of the world of food. Um, but when I think about biology, I think about the industries that exist from biomaterials to storing digital data and DNA to the food that we eat and to our bodies as well. Cool. Well, hopefully that will be sufficient to inspire somebody to do something in the biological space. Yeah. And if they do, you have a new cell valley where they can come and yes. get started about, yes. right? Yes, we have a little little incubator space here where we rent out uh, lab space. So obviously Wild Earth is now a fully commercial company and we're scaling and growing. Uh, uh, we're actually, just to give everyone an idea of, of size, so we're about a two-year-old company. We are nationwide uh, in all 50 states, uh, and we actually have 60 stores and some exciting partnerships, retail partnerships we're going to be announcing very soon. Um, and so um, we still want to give back to the community. And so we have space here that we are looking to rent out and obviously provide some guidance for, for fledgling entrepreneurs that need it. Um, so feel free to contact us, cellvalleylabs.com. Um, and then also, if you are curious about pet food, um, uh, just a quick shout out uh, the, on the Clean Pet Food Revolution book that we just launched. Uh, so you're welcome to check it out. It's on Amazon. Uh, and I'm going to be giving Paul his copy right afterwards. I cannot wait. I'm very honored. I, I think I have a blurb on the book or, or on the you website. Do, you or do, you do, else, you so. do. I think it's in the book too. Okay, yeah. very cool. I'm greatly honored and I can't wait to have my own copy in the flesh here. So Ryan Bethencourt, uh, I am rooting for you. I'm impressed by everything that you've done so far. How old are you? Uh, well, now I'm 40, 40 years old. 40, all right. Very cool. Yes. I, I too am a 40 year old. All and, right. Uh, you know, <laughs> I like to think of both you and me as maybe only about 40, 45% done with our lives. So um, maybe you think you're going to live much longer. I don't Hopefully, know. Hopefully, let's see where we go, right? <laughs> let's see where we end up. But it's pretty impressive to me all that you've accomplished in those first four decades. And I'm very excited to see what the next four hold for you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for everything and all your support. All right, Ryan, I've seen the ad so many times watching you eat wild earth out of a bowl like it was cereal. Now I'm going to get to try some as well. Right. Here we go. We'll try it. You can hear it pouring out here. Got a couple pieces. Looks very good. Feels nice, firm uh, uh, to the touch here. Okay, All right, that's good. You know, you know what I would do with this? I mean, first of all, it tastes good. I like it. What I would do is I would put it like as a crouton on salad. That would be like a good use for this. So if, if you have any trouble marketing it to, for people with pets, you have a crouton business. Yes. Well, and the sharks loved it too, right? On Shark Tank, yeah, yeah. all the sharks ate it too. So. I feel so cool. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.